For our time this morning, we are beginning a new sermon series titled, In Search of a King. And the title really underlines the theme of this entire series. We'll be focusing on the theme of kingship that runs throughout the entire Bible. And uh, the idea of a king might seem a little out of place for us. We just don't live in a context where the authorities in our life have that kind of concentrated power. You know, we live in, in a land that is a democracy and a republic. And so um, the idea of a king, it just might seem a little bit like a, like a foreign idea to us. And in fact, it, it very much is anymore. Um, but something we need to remember is that in the ancient Near East, nations were largely ruled by kings. And a king was someone who stood as the representative and the lawmaker, the enforcer and the protector, the provider of the people in the ancient Near East. And so if you have a king, especially a great king, you would prosper. Your king would know how to make the right calls, would know how to form up uh, security and establish the borders. The king would know how to do a lot of great things uh, on behalf of the people. Injustices would be made right. And the interesting thing is that God's people, the nation of Israel, was made to be different than any other nation because instead of having kings of their own, God's intention was that he would be Israel's king. And God was exactly the type of king that Israel needed, but he's not the type of king that Israel wanted. And so Israel was always kind of in their hearts searching and hoping for a king. Interestingly, as Christians, one of the things that you'll often hear God's people say is that Jesus is our king. Um, And that sounds like an odd statement, but essentially when we say that, what we're saying is Jesus is the one in whom all authority in heaven and on earth is given. Jesus is the one who commands how I should live. Jesus is the one who rules on my behalf and he protects and provides for me. But even when Jesus came to earth to take his place as king among his people, he often didn't fit the paradigm that everyone was looking for in a king. Honestly, even though many of us claim to be in good standing uh, as citizens under the kingship of Jesus, I think deep down there's more struggle with Jesus than meets the eye. I think even us too are searching for what it means for Jesus to be the king in our lives. And I know that there are a lot of people looking for hope and protection and provision and maybe not knowing what direction to look for that hope. And so that's what this series is going to guide us through. We're going to look at this theme of kingship. We're going to be looking at some of the narratives of the Old Testament. And eventually we're going to land uh, around the time of Holy Week and Easter at looking at Jesus Christ and uh, understanding how uh, we are in search of a king and how God has presented to us exactly the king that we need. Now, in order for us to understand our passage this morning, I need to take some time and build up some context and give us a little bit of history, refresh our our minds about what has taken place in the unfolding of, of Israel leading up to this point. You know, Israel was a nation that was created by God. He pulled them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the wilderness. He said, I have delivered you out of the hands of Pharaoh. I have pulled you out of that slavery, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And it was out of the grace of delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh that God then said, I will be your God, and this is how you should live. And he gave them the law. And in the wilderness... They stayed for 40 years as they learned what it meant to actually submit themselves to this covenant promise, to take God on his terms and not try to approach God on their terms. 
And so finally, after 40 years in the wilderness, God delivers the people into the promised land through a man named Joshua. And so if you read the book of Joshua, you read how Joshua brought Israel into the promised land. And the Lord was with Israel in many of the battles that they uh, encountered. The, The instructions that God gave to the people of Israel were to go into the land and to drive out the people that were there. God said, I'm giving this land to you. This will be an inheritance for you. This will be a gift to you. You will be blessed by going into this promised land. But you must do one thing. Don't try to make peace with the people that are living there. They will pull you away from me. And what happened is they go in and they're having a lot of success and they're nearing the end of their campaign, their conquest of driving out the peoples and Joshua is nearing the end of his life. And as he is coming to the close of his life, he brings all of Israel together and he says, let's make a promise before the Lord. Let's renew this covenant right now that God will be our king and we will be his people. And he basically says, are you going to be able to do this? And Israel says, yeah, absolutely. And they renew the covenant at the end of the book of Joshua and Joshua dies. The next thing that happens, it's only a couple generations later, a little bit of time passes and Israel, scripture records in the beginning of the book of Judges, does what is evil in the sight of God. Judges records how these people don't remember. They don't know. They're not, it's not fresh in their minds of who God is and what he has done on their behalf and the high commitment that it is to be God's people. When God's your king, you are expected to live in this way and be faithful to what he has asked of his citizens. And Israel forsook that. They would not follow along with that plan. And so what happens in the book of Judges is we see seven cycles, seven uh, repetitions or seasons where Israel does what is evil in God's sight. They choose to walk away from God. And God says, if you're going to walk away from me, then I'm going to withhold, I'm going to remove my protection and blessing from you. And what happens is the people they were supposed to drive out all that time, well, those people turn against Israel and create all kinds of havoc and conflict and affliction. And God's people begin to suffer. And God lets them suffer until finally, after so much crying out, he relents and he raises up a hero to deliver them out of their suffering. And so that's what often happens. In all these cycles, Israel does something evil. God lifts his hand of protection. He lets them have their own way. And of course, calamity comes on them. And God then listens to their cries. He hears how sorry they are. He hears their lamentations. He sends a hero. This happens seven times. In the book of Judges. And each time the conflict gets a little bit greater. The enemy gets more and more powerful. And the heroes that God raises up are less and less impressive. They are more and more flawed as people. And by the end of the book, the final conflict that we're kind of presented with is that Israel's no longer fighting these other nations. But now Israel's just fighting itself. The book ends with Israel taking vengeance and slaughtering the tribe of Benjamin, this tribe that had done wrong. And all of Israel turns against itself. And the book ends with these ominous words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So Israel was in ruins at this point. They were to be a holy nation. 
God had set Israel apart to be a people for his own glory. And if you look at them by the end of the book of Judges and really the beginning of the book of Samuel, they were a train wreck. Israel was a mess. They were a loose confederation of tribes and they looked nothing like the people that God had called them to be. And there was no king in Israel. There was no one to bring them back together. There was nobody to restore peace and order in the nation. God was not their king. And there were no leaders like Moses or Joshua to lead the people back. And that's where 1 Samuel picks up. Israel is in shambles. And the question that readers would have in our minds is, how does Israel ever recover from this? How do they come back? It's clear that they need a king, but they don't need just any king. They need God as their king. But their hearts are far from that. So how could they have God as their king again? Well, in 1 Samuel 4... That's all the background for this fight that the Israelites enter into with the Philistines. Israel, in this weakened condition, a people far from God, tries to take on the Philistines again and fight them. And Of course, they're no closer to God. So when they fight, they are defeated. And this is in uh, chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. And they lose 4,000 men when they come against the Philistines. And Israel is confused. They say, why did God strike us down? You notice they're saying they believe that God was active, but he was being active against them, not active for them. Why did God strike us down? Well, they decide that it would be a good idea to go and grab the Ark of the Covenant and bring it into battle with them. That maybe if they grab this Ark of the Covenant, that God would give them favor and they would have the power to defeat the Philistines. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a box that was about two and a quarter uh, inches tall, two and a quarter inches uh, deep, and about three and three quarter inches long, okay? So you, it's, not a, it's not a giant box. And it was covered, or inches, what am I saying? Feet. Whew! That would be a very small box. It's like the Ten Commandments would be written on rice or something. Anyway, Feet. So it wasn't a very large box, but it was covered in gold, which would have made it heavy. And other than traveling through the wilderness, this box usually sat in the tabernacle behind a heavy curtain in the innermost part of the tabernacle. This was Israel's place of worship, and it was called the most holy place. And the ark represented something very significant to Israel. It represented God as their king. See, the ark had a lot of symbolism that it contained. It contained symbolism of God's rulership and his revelation and his reconciliation. On the outside of the ark were two winged creatures that served as a representation of where God would sit enthroned among the people of Israel. Inside the ark were the stone tablets with a copy of the law, God's revelation to his people, his decrees as king as how the citizens of the kingdom should live. And then the top of the ark would be spattered with blood once a year for the forgiveness of sins, the reconciliation and the forgiveness and grace of the king that he would have with his people when they broke the law of the covenant. And that is the box that they decide to grab and take into battle with them. A box that represented God as their kings. But to the Israelites at this point, it was nothing but a good luck charm. It had worked in the past. They knew some of the stories of people who would take the ark and take it into battle and they'd be victorious. And so Israel thought, you know what? It's worth a try. Maybe God will see that we believe he can fight our battles. 
And you see what the problem is here. They had no intentions of living with God as their king. And because he was not actually their king, they would not submit to his authority. They were not going to listen to his voice. They didn't care what was written in his law. And of course, if they're not going to recognize his authority or listen to his voice, then what do they have to be sorry for? Why on earth would they need forgiveness? Well, quite a lot, as it turns out. But you see what's happening here. They carry the ark into battle. And what happens is the plan backfires. They're beaten even worse than before. Many Israelites die in battle, some 30,000, including Eli the priest, his two wicked sons. And the news of this defeat comes back to Eli, and it breaks Eli's heart and subsequently breaks his neck. Eli ends up dying. The priest has died. Who will lead the people back to the Lord if the priest has died? Not only that, it even causes Eli's grandson to be born early, and the grandson is really given an unfortunate name. My apologies to anyone who has the name Ichabod here this morning. But the son is called Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And what it meant was that it was really clear all of a sudden to the people close in the priesthood that God's glory has left us. It feels like God's glory has left us. And clearly this is so, not because the ark was gone. Israel's unfaithfulness had caused God to withdraw his glory years ago. But when the ark couldn't coerce God into action, and now with the ark missing, it was clear to all that God's favor and glory was not with Israel at this time. And to us, it's clear why. So Israel is defeated. The ark is then captured. It's taken by the Philistines into their camp. And the Philistines take the ark, and they decide to place it next to their supreme god named Dagon. Dagon was a god of grain fertility, He was uh, a God that the the Philistines often tried to appease so that they would have favor and have um, productive seasons of harvest. And so they decide, we're going to place God in this ark, this representation of uh, of Israel's God. We're going to put it right next to Dagon. Because obviously, he's done with Israel, and he probably wants to come be on our side now. And it doesn't take long before they realize that God does not work this way. After busting up the statue of Dagon, God brings affliction on the Philistine cities with plagues that lead to death. And the ark gets passed around like a hot potato, going from city to city, to five Philistine cities. For seven months, they try to keep hold of the ark and use it to their advantage, but it brings nothing but affliction upon them. And so finally, after seven months, they decide to unload this thing. So they send it back to Israel, loaded with some uh, gifts for an offering knowing that they have done wrong against the Lord. And the ark comes back to Israel at a place called Beth Shemesh. And it's there, the people of Beth Shemesh rejoice. They start to prepare all these sacrifices. They put the ark up on a rock because they think God's favor has returned to them. And so they put it up on a rock, and some men dare to even look inside of it. And God strikes 70 of them down, dead. Well, they come to a quick realization. Who can stand before such a holy God? They send it off to the neighboring city. They consecrate a man named Eleazar to be the guardian of the ark. And it sits there for 20 years. And Israel laments 
after the Lord. And this is where we'll pick things up with that little boy Samuel. He's all grown up now. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, let's look at verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with your whole heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up from Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people, said of, the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to, Israel, or to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and drew them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. I know that was a lot of background, but I hope you can see how the background really helps fill out the story and capture the emotion of what has taken place here in chapter 7. It's important to see the trajectory of what, God, of what has happened to Israel, that Israel was nothing like what God wanted them to be. To boil it all down, for Israel to be everything God wanted them to be, they needed to have God as their king. But the problem was they didn't want God as their king. They had an idea of what king they needed, and they were quite content being kings of their own lives, as the book of Joshua says. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God shows us in this passage that he is not content just to serve us as a king of convenience. God will be the king of his people. He desires to be the king of his people, but in order to take back the throne, he's got to break down the idols that his people have. And so we see that happening in this passage in chapter 7. We see God breaking down Israel's idolatries um, in four ways. Actually, beginning in in chapter 6, we first see God breaking down the idolatry in Israel's mind by letting them have this devastating defeat. He shows that he is not a God who can be coerced by superficial action. 
It was the crushing defeat that began opening Israel's eyes. They lost thousands of men. They lost their priest. They lost the ark. And that's when it became clear to them, just as the boy born after the battle was named Ichabod, the glory has departed. The hardship of battle showed them that the convenient God they had in mind was not the living God who had promised to care for them. If they wanted a God who only showed up when they needed him, then they were not truly interested in having God as their king. And so he was breaking them of this idolatry. The God they thought they had on their side was a false God. He was as worthless as any inanimate idol. But the true God was active. And he allowed them to be decimated so they would understand that he will not simply be content to be a king of convenience in their life. They can't just grab onto him whenever they want to defeat their enemies. They have to be close to him throughout the entirety of their walk. The second way God breaks down idols is that he shows that even though he's not a God of convenience, he is a God who is faithful. Even though God allowed Israel to be defeated, he was not abandoning Israel. The Philistines make the assumption that God was switching sides, that in some way he would begin working on their behalf, just like they believe Dagon could. But God will have none of it. God is faithful to his promises to Israel. But how could Israel repent when they have a covenant with their God that is renewed through the Ark of the Covenant, the revelation of how they should live, the place in where they sprinkle the blood to be cleansed of their sin, the place in which they say, God, you come and dwell among us. The ark was gone. So how could they repent? How could they come back under the Lord's kingship? Well, God makes a way. God delivers the ark back to Israel. He brings so much affliction upon the Philistines that they send the ark back. And it shows us that God is not fickle. That he doesn't just walk away from his promises that he makes. But God, even though he allows us to go through hardship, he's faithful to make a way for us to be delivered from it as his people. God will be a king and make a way for them to be his people once again. And so he sends the ark back. And it's again breaking down the idols. God's not a simple God that we please and then if we've incurred his displeasure, he'll never come back to us. God is a a God of his word and he's faithful to his people. The third way we see God breaking down idols in Israel, is in this sad business at Beth Shemesh. The ark returns. It's clear that God desires to be with Israel, but it doesn't mean that everything's okay and all is forgiven, that their sin can simply be swept under the rug. The people at Beth Shemesh see the ark. They start celebrating. They think that God has found favor with them again, that God is relenting, and that you know, if they offer some quick sacrifices, then God will be on their side. And so they set the ark, not in the Holy of Holies, not in a place behind a veil, separated by layers of recognition that God is so much more than we deserve. And we can't stand to be in his presence, but they simply put it on a rock for everyone to see. And they invite people to come by and look into it even. They are irreverent with God. They think, well, God must not be mad anymore. They soon realize that, yes, God is faithful, but God is still holy. Again, he is breaking their pictures and their ideas of what God is like. That God is a God to be coerced. That God is a God to simply relent and find favor and come back. And there isn't a serious atoning that needs to take place in order to have him back as king in our lives. 
And so the men of Beth Shemesh are, are struck down, and Israel realizes the gap that exists between them and their king, and they mourn for 20 years, lamenting after God. And it's in this waiting that God breaks down their idol once more. I think the timing is so interesting. God allows Israel to stay in limbo for 20 years. Why so long? Why so long? Well, how long does it take for an idol to be broken? How long does it take to cultivate a longing for God as he offers himself instead of a longing for a God after our own longings? Israel did well to be sorrowful, but they needed to repent. How long does it take to be ready to give up the Baals and the Asheroth, to see that those things are powerless? They needed to see that their syncretistic religion was not getting them anywhere. And God was not satisfied to be a God among many gods, but he was going to be the only king ruling over his people. It seems they quickly mourned and lamented, but they needed to want him bad enough to let their other gods go. And it's when that time came, after God had broken up this idolatry in Israel's hearts, that God raised up a mediator to lead them into repentance. Samuel was the one God used to bring back Israel. Samuel calls Israel to repentance. He says, if you really want to repent and turn to the Lord, then give up the idols. Let those things go. And that's exactly what they did. It wasn't enough for Israel to feel sorry and to regret. True repentance required turning away from sin. Samuel told the people to turn from their idols and Asheroths, and they were ready to do it at this time. They did. They They sought after God. And what happens next? The enemy, the Philistines, rises up against them. Of course, they might feel tempted to start getting desperate for how do we protect ourselves. The Philistines had defeated us over and over again. He de- they defeated us even when we took the Ark of the Covenant back into battle with us. We were decimated. And now as we're coming before the Lord, they're coming after us again. But the people of Israel say, to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord God for us, that he may save us from the hand of Philistines. Notice they don't assemble into battle formation, but they simply ask Samuel to cry out for them. They ask Samuel to intercede for God's mercy, to intercede for his deliverance, to remember his covenant promise to be their king and to save them. And when their hearts turn to him, God answers Samuel's cries. And the Philistines are defeated. And the cities which had long been under the control of the Philistines were given back to Israel and restored. Well, it's been over 3,000 years and some things never change. God is still God. And people are still people. You see, the problem with Israel, and the problem with us, is that so often we want God to be our king But we only want him to be our king when it's convenient. When life is going well, we really don't want God around. We're quite content to take things from here. We feel quite capable of deciding what is right. Like Israel, we're quite comfortable um, by doing what is right in our own eyes. 
And when life gets upset, boy, that's when we want God with us. We want God fighting our battles. And if God doesn't seem to be coming through in the first couple times we ask for his help, that's when we get religious. That's what Israel did. Things were not turning around and they thought, well, let's bring the ark with us like the good old days. Let's show God how much we believe that he can win this thing. But God doesn't respond to it. You know, we might start to do some things similar in our lives. It might be that season where we really start going to church. We might start giving in the offering or giving to worthy causes. We might start making promises to God in prayer of how we're going to live if he would just help us. When trouble comes, we get religious. And it's not uncommon for us to ask for God's help. But just like Israel, we want him to fight for us, but we don't actually want him to be our king. We want the convenience of God without the commitment. We want God to be instrumental in our lives, but we don't want him to be the center of our lives. We want God to be our protector and our provider, but we don't want to be his people. We don't want to have to live differently. We don't want to have to bow to his will. You see, we want a king, but the king we want is not the king that we need. And God is not satisfied to just be a king of convenience in our lives. He wants to be the king that we need. And so he works to break down our idols. Like Israel, God will allow us to experience defeat so that we won't have the wrong idea about him. Like Israel, God will not forsake us, though. He's not fickle. He makes a way for us to come back to him. Like Israel, we can think that forgiveness is cheap, that the promises of God's faithfulness mean that our sin can just be swept under the rug. Because we throw around sayings like God is love, we think that there's no serious atoning that needs to take place in order for us to know him. But God shows us that he is holy. And like Israel, we can use seasons, God can use seasons, excuse me, of mourning to bring us to a place where we can truly receive him as king. Where we receive him on his terms and not expect him to operate on ours. It's not uncommon for us to find ourselves in a spiritual rut as Christians. It's not uncommon for churches that at one time have been victorious and vibrant and filled with life, a sense of God's presence and glory among his people, to go through seasons where it seems like God's glory has departed. And it's not uncommon for brothers and sisters who at one time felt so near to God, they felt like they were walking with him hand in hand at the time of our conversations to feel like God was a million miles away and could care less about them not uncommon to feel like God's glory has departed, like his presence isn't with us. But of course, it's not God that walks away from us. It's we're the ones who have walked away from God. Like Israel, we do what is right in our own eyes, and it doesn't even take a generation of time for us to put ourselves on the throne and pull God off of it. And when that happens, God might let us feel it. It's important that we see we cannot manipulate God into coming through for us when we want. God knows the difference between a person who wants a victory and a person who wants him to be the king in their hearts. He's not fooled by our false piety. And he'll break us of any false ideas of who he is and how he works. But the good news is that after he breaks down our idols, after he shows us that he's not simply going to be a God of convenience, is that he makes a way for us to return to him. 
The beauty of this passage in, in 1 Samuel 7 is that God raised up a mediator. We see that in Samuel, God raised up a mediator who led the people to true repentance. Israel knew enough to feel sorrow, but they didn't know enough to clean house and turn away from their sin. Samuel came and told the people to truly repent, and after they did, he made intercession on their behalf. And of course, just as Samuel was hearing the voice of the Lord, his father, from a very young age, it reminds us of another child that God would raise up who listened to the voice of God from a young age. Just as Samuel interceded for God's people, it tells us of another that intercedes for God's people. In fact, it wasn't even Samuel's interception that God was uh, answering. It was the intercession of Jesus Christ nearly 1,200 years later that God was answering on behalf of his people. Jesus came to bring us back to God. He came to bring us into God's glory. And as we repent and turn back to God, old enemies will rise against us and we will be tempted and distracted to maybe pick up the old ways, to maybe think, God, how can we stand against this? I want to live for you, but there's this temptation in my life. There's this thing in my life that is coming back against me. We might think we might need to corral the forces and take that on in our own strength and power. But instead, the people, through Samuel, Say, Samuel, cry out for us that God would deliver us. There's a sense in which living as God's people, we might try to be obedient in our own strength and prove to God, look how good we are. Look how much favor we should have from you. But there's a sense in which the only way to receive his favor is to ask and plead for a mediator, through a mediator, for him to remember his promises. Promises that were made true for us in Christ. Like Samuel, Jesus does not cease to cry out to the Lord for us. He is the one who intercedes for us eternally, seeking God to remember his promises, not based on our faithfulness, but based on his. And it's not because of our piety. It's not because we're sorry for our sin, but because Jesus intercedes for us that God comes through on our behalf. Through Christ, God becomes the king that we need, even though he's the king we don't deserve. I love this story because when God delivered Israel from their enemies, Samuel set up a pile of rocks and he called it Ebenezer. And this pile of rocks was to be a place of remembering that whenever Israel would pass through this region and they saw this pile of rocks, they would remember what God had done on their behalf, how God had been their help at that point. And like Samuel, Jesus has set an Ebenezer before us. Only it's not a pile of rocks, but it's a table. A table of remembrance. Jesus sets this table before us and invites us to see how far God has helped us. This table shows us how we receive God's promises. How we receive God as our king. That we do not receive him through our mere obedience or our piety, but we receive him because He sent a mediator on our behalf. Jesus came and he died on the cross, atoning for all the sin that separates us from the Lord so that the glory of the Lord might be with his people again. And as often as we come to this table, we remember God's faithfulness in the past. We come to this table and it reminds us of God's faithfulness for the present, that he can deliver us from the temptations 
that we have in our lives. And it also helps us to remember and look forward to God's faithfulness in the future. That he will be our king even when we wander because of the atonement that has happened in our mediator Christ. And so we invite all who place their faith and trust in Christ's life and death for forgiveness of your sins. We invite you to receive these elements this morning and to remember God's help on your behalf. And if you've not trusted Christ in this way, we ask that you not take this meal because this meal will not mean anything for you. As the elders uh, are coming forward, I would like to emphasize, though, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, we would love to talk to you about it. You can approach any of the elders that are coming up this morning, Pastor Terrence or myself. Make sure you grab us after the service. I want to emphasize one thing. It's an important thing when we come to this table that we come to it in a right way. When we receive communion, it is a way of proclaiming that God is our king. That we understand how it is that we are his people. That we understand his place in our life. And how it is that we are accepted and cared for as his people. And so it's important that we don't come to this table thinking that by taking this, God is somehow happier with us. It can be a real temptation just like Israel carried the ark into battle, to come to an element like the Lord's Supper and think, if I show how much I am ready to follow God, if I show how much I'm ready to have God win my battles, it's important that we don't think we can coerce God with an action like that. We come to this table not to win any of God's favor, but to trust in a favor that was given to us by a victory that was won for us in Christ. And so as you partake of these elements this morning, our prayer is that you come in a right way. Don't come thinking that this will be a way that God magically will start answering your prayers. This is not a a rabbit's foot of good luck. But this is a meal that reminds us of the true grace and goodness of a king that we do not deserve, but made a way for us to be his people. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this meal and for the privilege that it is as your people to benefit from it, to be reminded of the great cost that it, that it took to be made into your people, that there is a separation between you and us, that you are holy and we are not. And we ask as we eat this bread and we drink this cup that we remember how much we are in need of your, our forgiveness And how much we are in need of Christ's life to sustain us as we try to live out this calling to be your people. Help us to rest in those things. Not so that it would go well with us. Not so that we would feel secure in anything else. But so that we might know the joy and privilege and blessing of being your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.